How's everybody doing this morning? Whoa, there I am. <laughs> if you have your Bible, turn with me to Hebrews chapter 11. We're going to jump off there in just a second. I am finishing up a series, as Karen was saying, um, a series called It Is Finished. It's been built around John chapter 19, where Jesus is hanging on the cross, and uh, everything he's done, he's done all the work, he's lived a perfect, sinless life, and now he is suffering for something he did not do. And so the Bible says, verse 30, chapter 19, John 19, 30, when he'd received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And I've said this every single time, but it was one word. It wasn't, it is finished, three words in English. It was teleo, it was a Greek word. It just means it is finished, and it will always be finished. It's a beautiful, beautiful concept of when he said it was done, he really, really meant it. The problem is we're not really living into that the way we should. So there's so much inheritance available to us. We've been talking about that. We talked about expiation, um, where Jesus removes our sin and takes away our guilt. Big words, propitiation, um, the fact that Jesus absorbs our wrath and he gives us Christ's favor in return. So a lot of uh, words that end in T-I-O-N, we didn't even cover. I mean, there's so many we didn't mention that we we just couldn't get to with, with the time we have. Redemption. Justification, sanctification, reconciliation, regeneration, resurrection. I mean, it just keeps going on and on and on. But it's a state of being. It's understanding that when this has happened and you get this and you live into it, it is yours by inheritance. No one can take it away. Nothing can take it away. It's yours. The government can't come take it back. (laughs) Jesus is not going to come take it back, right? So it is yours forever for all time. So it's really important to understand that. But here's the big question. How do we receive it? Like we, for, for most of us, we've been around for a while. We know these things are available, but how do we receive our inheritance? What is it that we have to do? Is there something that we have to do? I mean, is it automatic? Do we just get it automatically? You know, and eventually if we hang around church long enough, it just comes to us through osmosis, right? And everybody knows that that's not how it's happened because we know people who've been in church for a long, long time and they're no better for it. <laughs> absolutely may actually be a little bit worse for the wear. But, but again, the question is, how do we receive the inheritance? We all kind of know this. We receive it by faith, right? We know this is the way it works. We receive our inheritance by faith. So the question, though, is what does that actually mean? Faith is just a, a beautiful, I mean, it's a beautiful spiritual word. It's, it's the language of our culture as Christians. It's the language of the religion. It's the language of godly people. But so often we learn words and we use words so often we don't really know what they mean. And then by use, they get kind of burnt out. So, for example, that's awesome really doesn't mean it's awesome, right? Like, <laughs> you know what I'm saying? So when you say to somebody, oh, look at your brand new baby. I have to be careful there's a brand new baby here. This brand new baby, by the way, is beautiful, right? <laughs> a little over a month old. <laughs> but what we do is we look at those babies and go, that baby's beautiful. And it's like, well, I, you know, I don't know, especially when you first come out. They're not, so, they're not very beautiful, right? But you can't say that to mom and dad because that word to them is just, this is who my baby is and he's always going to be this way and that's just how it works. But if we're not careful, we use words and we get into words like faith and regeneration, reconciliation, expiation, and we read those words and we're like, do I actually even know what that means? So I want to start, you can't really talk about faith without talking about Hebrews chapter 11. So we're going to jump into there for in, in just a second, but let me just talk for a second about the book of Hebrews. Um, I don't know about you, but the book of Hebrews for me was challenging. The first time I read the book of Hebrews, um, I was a young Christian, and I probably shouldn't have done it <laughs> because I did not understand grace, right? Even the song we were singing earlier in worship, may his favor be upon you, right? And then later on in the song, that chorus 
um, that refrain over and over again is ah, amen, right? It's amen over and over and over again. And Karen said, that's you and I saying I agree with the fact that God's favor is upon me, right? But if I don't know that, then what, I, what I'm thinking, I live my life trying to obtain the favor of God, trying to obtain what God has already given me in the cross. There's an inheritance that's been made available to me in the cross that we were talking about that um, last week. And the fact that God absorbed my wrath and in, in, in its place, taken away my wrath, and in its place he's given me Christ's favor. But I don't feel like it, right? And, and it seems circumstances doesn't seems like, it doesn't seem like God's favor is upon me. And so I remember reading Hebrews, and Hebrews was really, really challenging. But, but if you will, take Hebrews. It's a pretty big book. Um, it's written to Christians who were under persecution. There were, there were Christians who were believers, Hebrew believers, who had, who had fallen in love with Jesus, had given their life to Christ, who had accepted him as the Savior, the Messiah. There were other people who were tasting to see. They were people who were coming out of the law. They were looking into the things of the kingdom in in Jesus, and they had not quite made their decision 100%. Um, there were other people who were, who were living in the church arena. In other words, they were connected with believers, but they weren't believers. So he's writing to several different people. So the book of Hebrews, the first 10 chapters, if you think of Hebrews, the book of Hebrews like a door, the first, uh, the first 10 chapters is this beautiful, ornate, gorgeous, carved, I mean, it's just it couldn't be more beautiful. And the whole picture of Jesus and his supremacy, that's the first 10 chapters of Hebrews, right? Just 10 chapters, on and on. The supremacy of Jesus over the high priest. Supremacy of Jesus over the angels. It just goes on and on for 10 straight chapters. And then there's a hinge in the last part of chapter 10 that that spins everything into, now if this is true, how do we now respond to that? But before we jump into that, I'm going to start reading in Hebrews, if you'll turn back in your Bibles a little bit, I'm going to start reading in Hebrews 10, 36, in just a second. But I want to back up and really kind of paint a picture of what the book of Hebrews does did to me when I didn't understand this. This is why it's imperative that you understand what has been made available to you on the cross. This is Hebrews 10, 26 through 29. If we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifice for sins is left. I got saved when I was 20, right at 20. So I'm I'm red-blooded American boy living overseas, and then one of the first things that I discover is that I can't watch TV in Europe because, you know, when they do the shower commercials, the ladies are naked, and I'm, uh, maybe Europe's ready for that, but Dave wasn't ready for that, right? So, so I'm like, okay, uh, that's not going to work, so I have to get rid of my TV, right? So I'm doing the right thing. I'm like, okay, I can't. This is not good. I'm going to have to get rid of my TV. But I had been a believer, and I send this. I mean, I see this, and then I send this, <laughs> and then I'm like, I read this passage and I said, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we've received the knowledge of the truth, man, no sacrifice is left. And I thought, have I, have I done it? Have I actually sinned away my day of grace? I mean, I don't, was it deliberate? Of course it was deliberate. I sinned. I knew, I knew what I was doing. I, I was tempted and I was drawn into it and then I was sinned. But isn't that just like the enemy? He, he tempts you into sin. You sin, and then he accuses you of being a horrible Christian. Maybe you're not even a Christian at all. That's what he does day and night. He is an accuser. It's what the Bible calls him. He's an accuser of the brethren. So that's what happened to me. But this passage went on, unfortunately, verse 27, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and of raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. So I'm thinking, man, I've done it now. I've sinned. I've I've really messed up. And now... um, there's no sacrifice for sins left, right? 
<laughs> and then the other says, I'm, there's the only thing expecting for me is a raging fire, um, and it's going to consume the enemies of God, right? And unfortunately, it went on. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy. Died without mercy. That's hard to take in when, when you realize that you probably deserve this, right? Died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? I don't know about you, but I quit. I just literally, I'm like, can't do it. I just, this is impossible. There's no way that I can do this. So let me just go back through this, because remember the first part of, of, of uh, Hebrews is the door. And it's about Jesus and his supremacy. I didn't know that. I didn't, I didn't think of the Bible as a, as a meta-narrative, which I've learned now that it's a big, big, big story, right? And it's telling the same thing over and over again, 100 different ways. It, it's genius. The Bible is absolutely genius in the way it delivers. It's, it's human, written by human beings, but it's all divine and godly inspired, which Timothy talks about. It's amazing and a billion different ways. I've been looking into this Bible and reading it for 30-something years, and it still surprises me every single day. Every single day I'll read something and go, wow, that means, oh, wow, and I start putting things in place that I hadn't put things in place before. But it's the same story over and over and over, over again. We're going to get into that. So how, why does this matter? Because this is the supremacy of Jesus over the law of Moses. Moses was the greatest man that had ever lived in, he, in, in Hebrew history. And this is calling out Moses and say, you think he's amazing. And that if people died uh, about the law that he brought, you think that that, that was judgment. Wait do you see the judgment of what happens when you reject what Jesus did on the cross, right? So here's the thing. Let me just go back through it quickly before we get into this. This is helpful. I hope this is helpful for you. It says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth. So we make this assumption. What that means is I'm, I'm a Christian, right? And I deliberately sinned after I became a Christian, right? There's no sacrifice for sins left. So this is so simple. When you get this, it changes your world. What does it mean? He's saying that Jesus' sacrifice on the cross is the only one that counts. If you sin, if you go sin and you do a terrible thing and you go to the law for help, if you go to, to the sacrificial system, which we've been talking about through this whole series, if you go to that for help, there is no help. He's saying there is no sacrifice for sins left because Jesus was the only sacrifice that matters. It's the only one that counts. He goes on, he says, it, only a fearful, what you expect if you don't receive Jesus, what you expect is judgment, raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Let me ask you a question this morning. Are you an enemy of God if you're a believer? Of course not. This scripture does not apply to you. It just doesn't. And that is good news. I can stop the series right now. That's good news. Thank God. There is a sin. There is a sacrifice that takes away my sin. Jesus ever lives. The Bible says his, his eternal life is the sacrifice, is the atonement, is the propitiation for my sin. Not just mine, but for the whole world, the Bible says. Which means that it, it is constant. It is forever. It was finished once and for all, and it's always going to be finished. So now let me jump into Hebrews um, verse, verse 36. Just a couple of passages down. Why is this important? Because he's talking about the supremacy of Jesus. In chapter 6, there's another challenging scripture that talks about this. I remember when I read this one, and I saw a visual picture of me trampling, when I sinned, trampling the blood of Jesus, just splashing in the blood of Jesus, a puddle, 
is a horrible, horrible thing I saw in my head, but I couldn't get it out of my head because I misunderstood grace and I misunderstood what Jesus had done on the cross. So this has been taught for years that you better shine up. You better do better, right? You better read more. You better go to church more often. You really, you need to give more too because I'd like to buy a, a, an electric car and they're really, really expensive. So you definitely need to give more. So I can get a raise, right? So we've been taught these things that you better, it's up to you to bring a sacrifice for sins. And the point of that scripture is you can't. There is no sacrifice of sins available except for what Jesus did. So all of your hard work means zero in the economy of God. It's only the blood of Jesus. So now we get that and it kind of culminates in this, man, this Jesus is the one, right? And then there's this, this hinge that happens in verse 36. It says, you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, and we go back to that and think, oh, I need to persevere. I, mean to, I need to do better. I mean to shine up. I need to, you know, and, and we, again, we put that weight on us. Hebrews 10, 36, you need to persevere so that when you've done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. Not what you deserve, but what Jesus has promised. Verse 37, for in just a little while, he is coming, will come and will not delay. That's a prophecy from, from the Old Testament. He who is coming will come and he won't delay. So, so Hebrews was written, remember, after Jesus on the cross. So Jesus has died on the cross. He was buried. He was resurrected. Uh, he he's obviously rose again, goes off into heaven. And now here we are, right? So the church is here and, and this, is, this author is writing to the church. And he says, he says Jesus, the one who is coming, he's coming. So he, he's died and he's, he's done this, and one day he's coming again, and here we are in the middle. And we've been in the middle ever since, right? So that's why you have to persevere, because it's the kingdom come and the kingdom not yet, and you live in the middle of it. And there's something that you have to do to appropriate what God has made available to you. God has called you on mission to go and reach people for Jesus. What does that even mean? It's to remind them that the love of God, the one who created them, is not angry with them anymore because Jesus died on the cross in, on their behalf. And so you get to share good news that God's not mad at you. His favor and his blessing is available to you. But like he said in, in, in a previous passage in verse 30, in 26, it, it's, you can't do it yourself. It's not under the Mosaic law. It's not under um, sacrificial system. It's not what you're going to do. It's what Jesus is going to do. He goes on. Verse 38, And but my righteous, my righteous one will live by faith. This was the Martin Luther, this was the thing. Romans in this passage was what caused Martin Luther to make a, a, a totally different direction, take a different direction in his life that led to the Reformation. Changed our world forever. But the righteous one will live by faith. And listen, and I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back. Now again, we read this and go, he's talking about my sinful, he's talking about me messing up, right? That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about people who shrink back from the, the truth that Jesus is the only way to take away your sin. If you shrink back away from that and say some other methodology is going to take my, my sin away because I'm, I feel really, really bad for my sin, I'm really sorry, or I, or I ask God forgiveness over and over and over and over and over again. And I'm going to preach a whole series about whether a Christian needs to ask for forgiveness or not. So stay tuned for that as we go into this next year. I'm not even going to answer that question. I'm going to let you stew in it for a while, right? But he goes on, he says, we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith, hear that, we belong to those who have faith, and we are saved, right? We belong to the ones who have faith. So this thing about faith, my righteous, my righteous one will live by faith. This is how you receive 
the inheritance. But remember, we're in the in-between. The kingdom has come. Jesus has made something available. There's coming a day when all the scrolls, the whole world, everything in history is wrapped up in a scroll. It's all said and done. It is finished. It, it, all of it that Jesus started and said it is finished here, it is complete, and there's, everything now is in the past. But right now, it is finished for some of us is in the future. And that's going to make sense in just a second. Jesus' death and resurrection, his return, right now we live in limbo. So I want to just focus on a few things this morning. It won't take me long, I promise, but I want to talk about three things. What faith is, what faith isn't, and how faith works. So what is faith? So often we have thought about faith. Part of this is religious teaching, growing up in in a religious culture. We think that faith is something that happens inside our heads. So Hebrews 11, I mean, go, if you get a chance, go read Hebrews 11. It's just, I'm going to read some passages in it, but it's just hero after hero after hero of faith. And it talks about over and over again, they, they come to a conclusion, they reason something out. Faith begins with reason, and it culminates in obedience. That's where I'm going with this. It starts with, with thinking, taking on a new mind. That's what literally what it means to repent, is to take on a new mind about who God is, how he works, how faith works, what, mattered, what happened at the cross, everything about Christianity, all of those things. Taking a new mind, getting your mind renewed. Old way of thinking, the law, the culture, um, brokenness, all those things. New way, I, something happened in the moment. I gave my life to Christ, and I get a new heart. I don't have an old heart anyway. Anymore, I get a new nature. I don't have an, an, an old nature any longer. They used to tell us in Bible, Bible school, one of our professors, he said, your old man is never so dead he can't be resurrected. That is a lie from the pit of hell taught to me in Bible college, right? They meant, well, what, what he was saying, hey, there are going to be struggles against the flesh. Well, say that then, man. That <laughs> would have been more helpful, right? It would have saved my soul a hundred million times over, thinking God, ascribing to God everything that comes from the enemy and ascribing to the enemy everything that comes from God. I'm like, man, I was so mixed up. And the more I would read and the more I would understand, the more I realized there's something that I have to do about what I know or what I know will do me no good. Does that make sense? So, we think it's inside our head, but faith is something else. So Hebrews 11 is one of the only places in the Bible that flat out just d- defines faith. And so I'm going to throw a couple of Greek words at you. Faith is the eupostasis of things hoped for, the elengos of things not seen. So just Greek words. And why I put those up there is because there's two different interpretations for the mo- most part about what those mean. So when I read this, this is the first one. Faith is the assurance or the confidence of things hoped for, the convictions of things not seen. Those are the two, that's one way that it's interpreted. How many of you guys have that in your Bible? Faith is the assurance or confidence of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Raise your hand if you have that in your Bible. Okay, a bunch of you, right? So here's the second one. Um, that, that one's mostly in the NIV, ESV, NAS, uh, NASB. Um, but here's the second one. Faith is the substance or the reality of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. That's in the New King James Version, the King James Version, CEV, several other versions. So two different things. So look at those now on on the screen. If if you're looking at this later on, it's in a PDF that you can download it. But faith is the assurance or confidence. That's a mental state of being, right? Look at the second part of it. Things hoped for, of things hoped for, for the conviction. That's a state of being. That's a mindset, right? And it's not wrong. It's not wrong at all. But look at the second version. Faith is the substance or the reality. That's a thing, right? That's not a state of mind. That's a thing. That's, that's a noun, right? right? That's, we get that. Of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. 
So here's the difference. There's two schools of thought on this. One is faith is just a mental state of being, right? You got you to get your head right. You got to think, think about God accurately. There's so much truth. It's not that that first one's not true. It's just, it's just not complete, right? So the second version, this is the one I subscribe to. This is the one I, I read out of the NIV, and it tells me something different. I have to know, I have to decide. When I look at another interpretation, I'm like, you know, there were some really smart people who understood the language really well, and they're translated into my language. And like uh, uh, teleo, that word we are talking about, about it is finished, that's three words in English and one word in Greek, right? So languages don't often translate perfectly, so they're doing the best they can. But it matters because the rest of the Bible, the whole thing is a meta-narrative written to us. And so when you get saved, you, this is what we tell people. You get saved, how do you do that? You follow Jesus. How did Jesus say to become a believer? He, he, didn't, he never one time said, you know what you need to do? You need to pray the, 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 the um, sinner's prayer. Here's, here's what you need to do. You need, and, and he goes through and he tells you to pray the prayer. There's nothing wrong with the sinner's prayer. Nothing wrong with praying it. We do that sometimes here. But is that enough? The answer is no because if you don't understand what you're praying, you're just saying a bunch of words. So, we, so, so often we get people to pray the prayer, they have no idea what they prayed, and then we tell them that they should have confidence that now they're saved, and they're like, I don't feel saved. Well, like, well it's not about feelings, what the Bible says. Yeah, but you have to actually understand it and act upon it in obedience, otherwise faith has no bearing on you in your life. And that's what we have to understand, that there's more to it than so often what we've been given in these cavalier you know, um, descriptions of, of, of the Bible and of God and the kingdom that you find on Facebook or social media. Take verses out of context, like Hebrews chapter 10, verse 26. Rip it out of the context of the Bible and, and put Christians in fear and, and ascribe to God something that they should never be afraid of, that they should be so thankful because God, he has paid the price and you're trusting and you're not an enemy. Right? So let's see how, this, how powerful this is. But this is what it is. Faith is an experience you have based on the choices you're making. See, when I have faith, there's something powerful about faith. It's not just a mental ascent. You know why I know that? Because the Bible says that the demons believe in God and they tremble. He's, he's picking on some people who are like, I believe in God. And he's like, no, you don't. You, don't. you say you, you don't understand that word, right? So you say you believe, but the, but the demons believe in God and they tremble. You're not even trembling, right? So what, what is he saying? He's saying that you, you keep saying those words, right? I'm struggling not to make a, a princess. Um, anyway, <laughs> some of you guys know where I'm going with that. <laughs> so there's this, there's this heart to say, I want to believe this, but do I actually understand it? Have I really understood the gospel? Because if you don't understand the gospel, how in the world are you going to give yourself to it? And you know what happens if you, if you do it and you don't understand it? Then what happens is, very quickly, doubt begins to set in and scriptures that you don't understand begin to tell you something different about God than is actually true about Him. And you begin to believe things about God that are completely untrue. And all of us have done that, right? So let me just give you an illustration. There's this thing called the crocus flower. So it's a symbol. It grows, it grows up in the snow. It, it, it blooms in the early spring, really the winter in most places. Mostly up north, we don't, obviously, this is not from northern, we don't get snow like this, but once every 20 years, right? And so, so this crocus flower just comes up out of nowhere, and, it, and it's out of time and out of place. But it's the promise of something, right? God, he did this on purpose, right? Just so I could have this sermon illustration. <laughs> so this, is, this crocus flower is the promise of something that's coming that isn't there yet. But it is, 
right? When you see the crocus flower, if you're up north, what do you do? You do what everybody, every young person does. You put on your shorts and your T-shirt and your flip-flops, and you go out and make snow angels, right? That's what you do. Because <laughs> people from up north are crazy. Let's just be honest, right? All you Yankees, we, you know, I was born in Chicago, just, you know, clear the air a little bit. But I'm just saying, when, when that happens, why do they do that? It's 47 degrees. And you see the crocus flower, and you're like, it's a beautiful spring day, the sun's shining, right? And you're like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to be in spring. And so you go out, and you're in, and, and somehow, are you still a little bit cold? Are the circumstances completely 100% spring yet? Absolutely not. But what are you doing? In your head, you have, you've begun to understand, even in a natural way, understanding faith. The evidence, there's something here, the crocus flower, and look at it and go, that is a promise that winter is not forever. And spring is coming, right? So, I mean, this was me in, in Denver in, in, in 1987. I went there for training and four feet of snow on the ground. And I'd never seen four feet of snow, okay? I barely seen four inches of snow. Four feet of snow on the ground. People on a Sunday day are walking. I went up to go skiing. They're skiing in shorts. I'm like, what, are you guys crazy? The answer is yes and no, right? But isn't that what people think of you as a believer? You put your faith in an itinerant preacher 2,000 years ago, who supposedly died on a cross. He didn't supposedly die on a cross. There's evidence. He supposedly rose again. He didn't supposedly do it. There's evidence. You can go search this out for yourself. If you're willing, right, if you have an honest, integrous heart, you can go find this. I know because I did. I I found it before the Internet. There you go, right? It's even easier now. So you can find out this truth if you really want to. There's evidence of a promise. This is what faith is. Faith is action based on reason. It is not blind faith. Christian faith is not blind faith. It's not saying, you know what? Dave said I should believe, so therefore I'm going to believe. Don't do that. That is foolish. That is stupidity. Don't do that. You have to have a reason for your belief. You have to have a reason for your faith or it's not biblical faith. It's just I'm being indoctrinated into something and I'm believing a narrative. If you don't know, if you don't believe that's true, just look around you, modern day America, right? I'm believing a narrative because I want to believe a narrative because I haven't really searched it out to find whether it's true or not. So has God said it? This is how faith works. Faith comes by hearing, hearing by the word of God. Has God said it? If he has, the question is only, can you trust him, right? That's where that goes. So let me tell you what faith is not. There's an idea of religious faith that says believing in something with no evidence. I just talked about that with blind faith. And then another idea that, that you have faith in faith. This is one of my favorites. This was a, a lie that came into the church around the 90s, uh, 70s, 80s, and 90s. And the idea is that the importance of faith, uh, the importance is on faith with no connection to the object of that faith. So you'll hear it said like this, brother, you just need to believe. Right? Anybody ever heard, brother or sister, you just need to believe. You just need to let God let go and let God. What does that even mean? Nobody knows what that means, especially the guy who's telling you to let God or let go and let God, right? He doesn't, the whole point is we, we hear these phrases and we walk into this and it, it creates the idea if I just believe hard enough that, the, that the, what matters is the fact that I have faith, not what I have faith in. That makes sense. So what you have faith in matters completely, 100%, because faith in something that is not true is not faith at all, is it? It's being misled, it's being indoctrinated, it's a hundred different things. Faith, faith must have an object, and the object matters. So here's how faith works. Just go back to Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. This is Sarah. 
We know her story. It says, and by faith, even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, you think? This lady's in her 80s, okay? Back then, right? There was no emergency room around the corner. She's going to have a baby. She's past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because, here's why that miracle happened, because she considered. See, that, that's a, that first definition. She, she reasoned in her mind. There was an assurance of something. She considered him faithful, that's an important word, who had made the promise. So she'd, re, she'd received this promise of the child. So why should she believe that she's going to have a baby? Right? That's a really, really good question that you, you need to ask as a believer. Why should Sarah believe it? Here's why. God had promised Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to give you a land to live in. They up and left, and they went on their way. They end up this land. He promised them wealth. He promised them land. He promised them all kinds of things. They're living in it. They're living in absolute wealth. They're itinerant. They're intense. But they, their land is as far as the eye can see. They have... They have she- uh, sheep. They have all kinds of animals. Everything you can imagine, the economy of that day, God had completely given them what he promised them, right? So she looked at that. That's her crocus flower. She said, you know what? God has been faithful. He was, everything he told me up until now, it's been true. I can, I can point to it. So this thing that he's telling me now, is a, it's, a, it's a bridge a little further, right? But, but is it, is it going to hold me up when I go over it? And her faith said, because God said this, and it's true, and he's saying this now, I can trust it's true before I even get there. I can live in the substance of it before I arrive at it. See how it works? It's beautiful, beautiful story. God has already been faithful, so can she believe that he can be faithful now? The answer is yes. Here's another one, verse 17. Here's her husband, Abraham. By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. Listen, you, people read this all the time and go, I'm not, I don't want to serve a God that will ask you to kill your own son. I don't want to serve a God that will give children cancer. I don't want to believe in a sky fairy. And they say all these fun words that when you look them up on the internet, everybody goes, yeah, 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 yeah. It's like, man, you guys are so arrogant. The stuff that people say on, on, on the internet, I remember the first time I experienced some of this, I'm like, that's disconcerting because they're, they're challenging me some areas I don't know that I can defend against. But you know what never happened? Not one single time did I go, you know what? Because of this arrogant child who happens to have a really high IQ, I've thrown away all of the things that God has ever done for me already. I never did that. And then I discovered that for everything that they would say about how God was wrong and how he gives kids cancer and all these other things, all these arguments against and ascribing to God the things that the enemy does, there was somebody else who could answer that question carefully in Scripture. It's not that hard. But you have to recognize that it's a narrative. It's a meta-narrative. It's a story that lasts for thousands of generations. That's what we forget, right? So when God says, I'm going to do this, and time begins to go by and it hasn't happened, guess what all the doubters and naysayers do? See, God said it, but is it true? Remember what the the serpent does in in the um, very beginning of the book? Did God really say? See what's happening? The enemy's coming, and he's undermining can you trust in the one who, to, who talked to you and who said these things? So here's Abraham. He's being, he's being tested. He offers Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promise was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Verse 19, look at this. Abraham reasoned. 
This is not blind faith. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead, and so in a, in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from the dead. So let's talk about this for a second. So God promises Abraham, I'm going to make your children as, as vast as the stars in the sky. The sand on, on the seashore won't, it, it's, it's too small to talk about how many kids you're going to, your, your inheritance, your, your seed into the earth is going to explode. And I'm going to bless the nations through you as a family. That was a picture that was a small part of the meta-narrative that God's saying, I want to bless people. My wife was sharing it this morning, opening in our, and during our worship time, that God's heart towards people is goodwill and peace on earth. But it has to happen in connection with him being the king. That's why they call it a kingdom, right? <laughs> you, can't have, you can't have two kings in a kingdom. It doesn't work like that. You can only have one, right? So, so what does that mean? That just means that throughout the story, uh, in, in the book of Genesis, the enemy comes and lies and says, God's not trustworthy. He's not faithful. He won't do what he says. And so they believe it, and they take a righteousness of their own through, the, through eating the tree, right? And then the story goes just spiral after spiral after spiral down and further and further. In a few places, there's some faithful people who even those, like Abraham lied about his wife, said she was his sister, and almost got everybody killed. I mean, he's not exactly the champion of perfect husband, right? So everybody, there's, there's, we're all human, right? But then there's coming a day when a human will come who's not like you and me, but he is like you and me. And he will live it perfectly. He's going to do it exactly right. And when he's all said and done, he's going to translate. He's going to transfer to me what I, what, what I need desperately. And he's going to take from me what I can't get rid of in, in my own strength. This is the beauty, the meta-narrative of the story. So Isaac is part of the story. God promises Abraham this. So, I mean, think about this. For years go by, they try to do it in their own strength, Right? That's where the other son comes from and where they're fighting even today in the Middle East. It comes from that decision for him to try to do God's thing his own way. And then you get to this place where now God says, take your son, your only son. Very important, your only son. And I want you to offer him on, on the, the altar. And so he's standing there with a knife. This is what he says. Faith in his heart says, okay, but you promised me, right, this son. And now he, he's before me. I've, I've had him now for years. This is my son. He is, he is the promise. He is the crocus flower to all the promises that you've promised me, right? He's right there in front of me, and, I'm, and now you're asking me to kill him, and I don't understand, God, what you're doing. Man, if we had the humility to say that, right? I just, Lord, I don't know what you're doing, but I do know what you're telling me. I know what I'm supposed to, I know what I'm supposed to obey. So this is what he said. He's, he raises the knife to kill him, and in his, he reasoned. If God was ever able to give me a son, that was a miracle, right? To give me life where there was no life between my wife and I. <laughs> if I take this child's life, that God is able to raise him from the dead. You see the picture of Jesus. I mean, the story, you can't miss the narrative in this if you understand the cross. And, and here's Isaac. You know, he's not exactly submitted, <laughs> right? He's got him tied up. But he goes to stop, and the Bible says he comes, Abraham, he has to say his name twice because he is so committed to obedience to what the Father said. It, what was it? It was a test. Well, God doesn't test us. Yes, he does. <laughs> go, go read the Bible, right? It's, he just doesn't test us the way you might be thinking about it. But his test is, will you trust me? Will you trust me? I've given you reason to trust me. And now I'm asking you to do something. And everybody in this room right now, everybody online, God is asking you to take a step of faith, but he's not asking it in an unreasonable way. 
There are crocus flowers everywhere when you turn around and look behind you. Spring is coming. His promise is there for you. You just have to make a decision. He reasoned. Isaac was his crocus flower. We have good reason to follow Jesus. This is what we've been getting after in the Bible. This is 1 Corinthians 15. For what I received, this is Paul talking to a group of believers hundreds and hundreds of miles away from Jerusalem where this all happened. He said, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. Not arbitrarily. There's a meta-narrative here. We've been telling this story for years. That's why the Bible keeps going back to this stuff. When you read the New Testament, you're like, why doesn't the Bible? How many of you guys remember the Roman road? Anybody learn the Roman road to witness to people? I used to think, you know, the, you know it's about four or five scriptures, just different places in, in Romans. And I used to think, well, why in the whole world did Paul even write the rest of Romans? It makes no sense. You don't need all that. All you need is the Roman road to get people saved, right? How arrogant, right, that we would think that, right? And, and we, we understand what's happening, but my favorite is if you were to die right now, where would you go? And my first thought when somebody said that, that to me is, I don't want to go where you're going because you're annoying. I'm just being honest, Right? You're annoying, you're religious, you're a jerk. Wherever you're going, I don't want to be anywhere near it, right? But, that, but that's what we do to try to win people to Jesus. That's not the story. It's not the story of God's faithfulness over and over and over, his kindness and his goodness over and over and over, a million times over, right? We see this here. Jesus' life and death and resurrection is the crocus flower for us to believe. I chased this down. When someone said Jesus was raised from the dead, I'm like, I don't know that that's true. Because I have never seen that in all of my life, and I read history books. Nowhere does it say anybody was raised from the dead outside of crazy people, right? Except for this story about Jesus. And when I explored it, I, got to, I went to the same com, uh, conclusion that the guy I was reading the book from, he went to the same conclusion too. He said, I got to the place where the evidence demanded the verdict. I did not want to be a Christian, but I could no longer not be a Christian because it was true. If I was going to be intellectually honest, I have to believe it because the evidence tells me it's true, right? People say, if your, God is so, if your God is God, then let him do something, right? And I'm just like, man, you might want to be careful with that kind of stuff because he's, you know, he's not a big butler. I yank a chain and he comes and does what I say. The whole story is I'm submitted to him. He's not submitted to me, right? <laughs> so you might want to take that into consideration in your arrogance when you shake your tiny little fist at this great big God. I'm just saying that because I did that. So let me wrap this up. This is Hebrews 11.8. Put those two together, reasoning, and then you do something about it. This is uh, Abraham again. This is backing up a little bit before those two stories. It says, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Abraham, when called to go to a place he would later receive as his inheritance. Listen to that right there. When called to go, God spoke to him to go to a place he would later receive as an inheritance, right? How many of you guys feel like there's a later involved in your, your, your story right now, right? And that's what God is trying to tell us. This faith thing, you can have the substance of it before you get there, and it actually brings it into, it's the craziest thing, but it actually brings it into existence. Not your belief that it will come, but your belief in the faithful one who said it is going to bring it about. So he says, when called to go in a place he would later receive as his inheritance, he obeyed and went. He reasoned in his mind, God is saying go to do this, and at some point he had to take that reason and turn it into obedience and actually go do something about it. He went even though he did not know where he was going. 
God, what are, you, what are you doing in this situation? You're asking me about changing a job. I remember when God told us to move down to, to Dothan, Alabama to, to be pastors here at this church. We left the most amazing church we have ever been a part of into our, our entire life until we got here. But we didn't know that, right? That was 20-something years. That was the best church, best people, most amazing people. If you ever get a chance, visit Northlands. They're still amazing. We were just up there this last week. Still amazing. They're amazing because they... They know this Jesus that we know. And, and I was blown away. And then God said, I want you to go to Dothan, Alabama. And I'm like, God, I know, I know biblically everybody's supposed to go to Dothan because it says it right there in the Bible, go to Dothan, right? So I know that. But, but, but Karen and I personally, what's, what's that going to look like? Our best friends, the most faithful people we know, people who, who get us, who know us, who encourage us, who believe for us and believe with us, who stand with us, who, who've helped us and who walked through some of the greatest challenges of our life, and you're asking us to leave them and go to the great unknown, right? You know what Northlands was to us in that, con- in that context? It was a crocus flower. It said, if this promise, look, I already did it once. What do you think Dothan's going to be like? And you guys are. You're my favorite. Oh, all the people I've pastored. Oh, I hope nobody sees this from people I've pastored online. <laughs> this is the best times of our life. The worst as well, you know, because the enemy's against it. But it's the best times of our life. And I, and I believe that's what God's doing. He's doing, he's building something here that's different than what I've known in the past. He's going to release his grace and his kindness and his goodness into the world. We get to pe- tell people the good news. But at some point, we have to believe it. I don't want to say something about Jesus because persecution. Come on now. They might make you feel bad. Let's be honest. They might not buy you the coffee they were going to buy you because you said Jesus, right? How hard is it? (laughs) Maybe it gets harder later. I don't know. But so far, what is real persecution for us as believers? So get some faith and say, man, I got some good news. Some, one of my favorite stories, this guy's trying to tell this young man about how to live, his, how to live out his marriage in faith and in Christ. And he goes, uh, and he's like, I need to tell him, but he's not a believer. So the guy asked him, he said, I, you, you have a great marriage. How can I have a marriage like that? And the guy, he thought about it for a second. He said, to be honest, he goes, um, I'm going to have to drop the name of Jesus about 8 million times when I tell you this story. Do you still want to hear the story? And the guy's like, you know, I, my marriage is falling apart. I need to hear somebody's story because my story ain't working, right? And he gets to tell him about Jesus. Within two months, that, that guy became a believer. So what happened? He just, he's, it, everything inside of him is, God, you called me to deliver this, this message. You've reconciled me to make me a reconciler. So how does this affect my inheritance? Like I said before, I have to have an object. I can't just have faith in faith. I have to have an object. You have to put away the feelings of all the circumstances because it goes on, it says about Abraham, he was a sojourner in the land, which meant there was some of the promise that didn't come true the whole time he was living in the land. And so you've got struggles. Every one of us have, this morning have struggles, have challenges against our lives. What are we going to do about what God's told me to do? We, I've heard so many stories about jobs and about, I feel like God is leading me to something. Okay, Hear him. Get, if you're not sure about what God's telling you, man, get clear. Get clear quick. Find out. Is God calling you? If you're supposed to stay in Dothan or go somewhere else or move away, ask the Lord. You're supposed to retire here. You're supposed to retire somewhere else. You're supposed to take this job or not. What? Right? Whatever those things are, there's no biblical, you know, thou shalt go to Dothan. Oh, wait, that actually is biblical. But most of the rest of them, right, you don't know. So what do you do? You have to say, God, what are you saying? 
And then when he says it, and you're clear about what he said, and here's the beautiful picture behind this. In our community, I, I, I was going to use a, I don't have it up here, but I was going to use an illustration. But let's say there's a stool behind me, okay? And, and I can't see it because it's, it's, I can't see it, but you can. And, and I say, you know what, I'm headed towards it. How am I doing? And you're like, left, right, left, right. Okay, over this further. Okay, stop. Now sit down. I, I can't see it, right? So what I know of you, most of you, <laughs> have a kindness towards me that you're not going to let me sit down where there's no stool, right? Some of you are, let's be honest. Some of you guys, are, I'm not sure where you are you want with the Lord just yet. But enough of you, if I see your face, you're like, sit down, Dave. And, and a couple things. One, you know, you, you know something about stools, that they'll hold my weight, right? That one's held other people's weight. There's a crocus flower. But my crocus flower now is you. My community is gathered around me saying, what you're doing, we agree with that. We see God in that. We recognize it in Scripture. We have agreement. Man, we love you. We want this for you. You got people who want to speak into your marriage, want to speak into your career, want to speak into your life, your, your personality, your jo- everything about you. You have a beautiful community around you that can be your crocus flower. And Jesus made sure that was available. So there's this transfer of trust from me to you. I have to believe that you can see something I can't see. And I do the same thing with God. I believe he sees something and he knows something I don't see and, and, and I don't know. But has he been faithful till now? Is it reasonable for me to believe that? And everything in this It Is Finished series, everything that's been made available to you is only accessible until you take it by faith. That means you're going to have to do, you're going to have to reason it, which is part of what sermons and messages are for. But at some point, you're going to have to make a decision, whether you trust God, trust the community or both, right? And you're going to have to, you're going to have to take a step of faith and believe that it's going to be there for you and release all of your weight onto it. That's what trust is, right? So I want to encourage you. Some of you guys are still struggling with, you know, is grace, is grace really real? Is it, is it really true? Can't, do I really have the favor of God on me, even though I sinned some big juicy sin just yesterday? Well, I don't deserve it. Got nothing to do with what you deserve. We've had that conversation a million times. God's favor is upon you, not because you deserve it, but because he loves you and he chooses to give it to you. Will he work it out? Yes. What we've discovered is when God's kindness and favor is upon you, the Bible says it leads to repentance. It's God's kindness and his goodness and his love for you and him pouring his mercy and grace out upon you, even when you don't deserve it, that leads to repentance. And repentance is what? Thinking a new way. Hearing, recognizing there's something different God's called me to. So I want to challenge you as we go into this new year. We've got, what, one more Sunday. We've got the holidays. All these things that are just upon us. But God has a great big future for us as we go into this next year. For you personally, for your family. I know you have struggles. I know that you're, you're, God's saying you're going to have a baby. And you're like, do you know how old we are? <laughs> right? God's like, it turns out I do, actually. Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> so at some point you go, God, what's the crocus flower? Maybe that's the first thing you asked this morning. What's your crocus flower? What has he done? What are the testimonies? My wife's trying to get us to get up here and share testimonies because we owe one another a debt of love. That's what the Bible says. The only debt we, we owe each other is a debt of love. And testimonies are part of me loving you because if God will do it for me, he's no respecter of persons, he will do it for you too. Why? Because it's not about my performance. It's about what Jesus did on the cross. But it's only available until you appropriate it by faith. Amen? I hope this series has been helpful for you guys. Uh, I know it's been really, really helpful for me. But if we get this, 
what kind of people are we going to be as we go into the year? I, I couldn't, when I understood grace, I could not wait to sell, tell somebody the good news. Especially when somebody said, I'm just a sinner saved by grace, and they're a believer living underneath the promises of God. I don't mean underneath because they're coming. I mean they're, they're afraid to step up because they know they don't deserve it. And I got to share the gospel of grace with them and let them walk into the fullness and inheritance of their life, and you're going to get to do the same. Amen? Stand with me. I'm going to pray and dismiss us. And I just, again, what it, what's your crocus flower? That's God's promise that he's done it already, and his promise that he'll do it again. And then what is this thing that you need to obey? God's given you something you need to step out in faith. And I don't mean blind faith. If there's no reasoning for it, don't do it. Please don't do that. That's dumb. That's how we get ourselves in, in trouble. It's just a bad idea. But if God is clearly shared with you, and the community is in agreement around you, you know, it's not just your private interpretation, you know God's called you to this. At some point, there has to be a step taken, an obedience factor has to engage. Whatever that is, your crocus flower and your obedience. Would you just do it and then come back and tell us the testimony. Share with us what God's already done. Amen? Jesus, thank you so much for your kindness and your mercy. Thank you, Lord, for everything that you accomplished on the cross on my behalf. Lord, it's unbelievable. It's almost too good to be true news, but it's true. And, Lord, we've seen it, and we've seen your favor and your kindness, and we testify that, Lord. And John said so that we could have fellowship with you and fellowship with one another. Lord, bring that about in a way that is literally tangible in our midst, that people are drawn to your goodness and your kindness through this fellowship. For that we say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you need prayer this morning, uh, up here we'd love to pray for you. If you're online, get connected with us at dothancf.com, and we'll get back with you. Otherwise, have a wonderful Wonderful week. We'll see you next week.